And now hear God's holy word from 1 Kings chapter 16 as we begin a new study in the life of Elijah. Hear God's word. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elisha the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahweh God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired every word of this text. And by that same spirit, we ask you to guide us into truth, help us to make proper application, deliver us from all error and false thinking, and direct us into truth by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, over the last several decades, as our lives have become more and more dependent upon technology and our comforts and our livelihoods are tied to what seems to be a very fragile network of institutions, there is this nagging sense that it could all just collapse in a moment. And to tap into that fear, there has been a steady popularity of what is known as the post-apocalyptic story or the post-apocalyptic genre of, of fiction. Through movies and novels and television shows, we have the opportunity to explore what life after the end of this world, what life after the end of this civilization will be like. These stories depict a future where man is fighting for survival in a world where all the conveniences and all of the innovations of our modern world have been lost or destroyed, and mankind must find a new way to get by after some great war or cataclysm or natural disaster. Now, there are plenty of hopeful views of the future. For every hopeful Star Trek view of the future where man has figured out how to get along and we use technology to good ends, for every one of those, there is a Terminator or a Matrix or a zombie apocalypse view of the future that is more depressing. Our technology turns on us. Our uh, institutions of society have crumbled and have turned on us, and now we must figure out how to live. Now, now, contemplating what life will be like after the end of the civilization seems to be more and more like just good planning rather than entertainment. You know, we now watch these things with a notebook and we're taking notes and say, okay, <laughs> need a machete, okay, any one of those, and uh, this is how we're going to live. But um, because from a certain perspective, it feels like we're living at the end of something. 
there is a real sense that a general disintegration is taking place. Things are falling apart and dissolving. Institutions are crumbling. Associations and relationships are being broken up. And you have to wonder if Western civilization as we know it is in fact winding down. If we bring a biblical perspective and a historical perspective to these things, we remember that this is obviously not the first time that anything like this has ever happened. Civilizations are always rising and falling. Societies are always getting broken up and being replaced by new ones. And this is the Lord's doing. It's not happening apart from his care or watchfulness. There are all these gateways in history that stand between two worlds as God calls his people to walk through this door to the new reality and the new world on the other side, to come walk with him through these changes into these new realities. The flood was one of these. It's a major gateway from an old world into a new. You must leave the old world behind. You must come with Noah and his family and get on the ark. As terrifying as that seems, while God works out his purposes in the earth and the world on the other side of the flood is not the same as the world before. The deliverance from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea was a gateway into a new world and a new reality. The Babylonian captivity was another. The coming of Jesus and the formation of the people of the new covenant uh, you have to come out, come out of the old world, come out of the old creation, join with Jesus, walk with him, leave the old world behind. Because if you cling to the old world, like Lot's wife tried to cling to the old world, if you stay there, like those who died in the flood, you are destroyed. If you step through the threshold, if you walk through the door into the new world, as scary as that often is, you have life. This is the way that the Lord moves the world and civilizations from glory to glory by shaking things up and plowing the soil, uh, the soil uh, putting to death old worlds and giving birth to new worlds. So just as Revelation was an important book for us to study over the last couple of years, in order for us to see heaven's viewpoint, heaven's perspective on the raging of the nations, another key section of the Bible to study at this time is the books of Kings and Chronicles. If you think that we are living at the worst time in history, you have not read the books of Kings and Chronicles. If you think that this is the worst possible civilization or the worst possible world with the most difficulties and hardships, you, you do not know uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles. Under, uh, in this narrative that we're given, in this history, we read about the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and how they languished under incompetent, wicked, idolatrous kings. And for the northern kingdom, it was for generations. And these are supposed to be the people who are in covenant with Yahweh. These are the people who are his precious possession, who he's chosen out from all the nations. How much worse must the situation have been in Egypt or Assyria or Tyre and Sidon? So, Watching these events play out gives us much needed perspective, seeing especially how, how do the faithful live in these situations? How do the faithful respond and act within these environments? The conflict and the questions that arise in 
so-called post-apocalyptic literature about how we survive after the end of a civilization are similar to the questions that come up in Kings and Chronicles. And certainly not to trivialize these, but to, but to lift them up and say, these are asking the questions that we all wrestle with as a society, as the glory of a once great kingdom is fading, and as idolatry reigns over the earth, as we lose our former glory, how do we live? And these are the very same questions we're asking today. How do you live at the end of a civilization? How do you live within the ruins of former greatness and blessing and glory? What kinds of things must we be pursuing and doing? What must we reject and avoid? So I want to pop right into the middle of 1 Kings, right at the appearance of the prophet Elijah, and study him for the next few weeks and his life and times. His days were a time like I'm describing, a time of terrifying new realities, and yet we get to see the Lord's purposes being worked out in the midst of conflict. This week, I want to paint you a picture of what his world was like. What was the world that Elijah entered? What was going on? And I want to give you some context. So in order to do that, we need to back up a little ways and remember what Israel's history was leading up to this point. Remember that after God had given his people the land of promise, he divided it up among the tribes of Israel in the days of Joshua, it wasn't long before the people started to cry out for a king like all the other nations had. That last phrase is key to what they were asking for. They didn't just want a king. In fact, they had a king. The book of Judges is all about the kingship of Yahweh and how the Levites failed to keep that in front of the people. The Levites are really the bad guys in the book of Judges. They fail repeatedly and obnoxiously throughout the entire book. And so because of their failure, the people want a king just like everybody else to bring order. And the Lord answers that prayer. He gives them a king just like all the other nations had. That king's name was Saul, who started off well. He started off on a, on a, on a good foot, but he ends up evil. He ignores the Lord. He abuses the people. He, his counselor is a witch at the end of his life. And this paves the way for the real king after God's own heart, whose name is David. David is a faithful man. When David sins, and he does sin, when David sins, he quickly uh, repents. When, when his error is pointed out to him, he's grieved and he repents of his sin. David has a son named Solomon, as you know, who becomes king. Solomon further increases the power and the influence and the glory of the kingdom. Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. But his heart is compromised when he marries pagan wives these wives worship idols, and he brings idolatry into his own house. And he raises his sons with this mixed view of, of God, uh, how, how we can tolerate idols and we can put up with idols. And so his son Rehoboam reaps the chaos and reaps the confusion and multiplies his problems with his own arrogance. When Solomon dies, the kingdom is split by rebellion and internal strife. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over the southern kingdom, the smaller kingdom of Judah, which includes Jerusalem and the temple. And then a rebel named Jeroboam takes over the much larger northern kingdom of Israel. But so that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel don't go south to worship at the temple... 
so that uh, he's not provoked to jealousy by his people going down to Judah. He wants to wall them off. He wants to keep them within the borders of Israel. He's got this great idea. Jeroboam erects images of golden calves at two shrines, at Dan and Bethel. He puts up golden calves just like the people cast at the base of Mount Sinai and worshiped Yahweh through this golden image. It was like a telephone to God. They wouldn't say that the image was God, but that you worship before this golden image and, and God hears you. They've, they've turned God liturgically into an image like a calf. So they'll say they're still worshiping Yahweh, but there's this liturgical idolatry going on because they're using images in worship. They're breaking the second commandment. And from here, we get two parallel stories in the books of Kings. There's one history of the north and one history of the south. And as you read the book of Kings, you have to keep it straight which kingdom you are reading about. So now we find ourselves in 1 Kings 16 in the northern kingdom of Israel who have cut themselves off from the worship of the temple. They've cut themselves off from the life of Israel, the festal calendar. They've cut themselves off from the sacrifices. They have no priesthood uh, uh, continuing in the north. They spiral into idolatry and wickedness. And over the course of about 60 years, the dynasty of King Jeroboam is replaced by Baasha, who assassinates Jeroboam's son. The house of Baasha then is destroyed by Zimri, who assassinates Baasha's son. And then Zimri rules for about seven days. That's a good, long, healthy reign. Zimri rules for seven days before he's overthrown by Omri. Zimri holds himself up in a tower in the middle of a city, and he burns the whole tower down upon himself. And now Omri is king, and then we find Ahab, his son, ruling in the middle of chapter 16. So the story of the kingdom of Israel is that a new dynasty violently breaks in every generation. And not only is it a new dynasty, but it also happens that each new king is worse than the last. The nation is wrapped up in rebellion against God, and there's no continuity. There's no cohesion at the top to lead the people in righteousness. The kingdom is crying out for one faithful, eternal king. There's a need for a Messiah to rule over them, but they've repeatedly refused to have Yahweh as their king. And so instead, we get this endless spiral down, 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 down. And this is what happens when people embrace idolatry. All idolatry can produce is more flagrant idolatry. Idolatry is uncreative, it is unimaginative, it has no eschatology, no view of the future, no expectation that anything is ever going to change for the better or ever can get better. Remember last week we talked about people groups and pagans who have no concept of time. It's just a circle of life and everything is just a cycle, but in fact it's actually a spiral that keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You just keep repeating what came before you except you repeat it more poorly. Remember, uh, you go to Blockbuster Video and you could get a VHS tape. Theoretically, if you had two VCRs, you could copy that tape if you wanted a copy of it for yourself, if you wanted your own movie. And I'm just speaking theoretically. I'm not saying I ever did this because that would be illegal. But I know of the fact that if you try to make a copy of a VHS tape, the second one, you can tell what movie it is, but 
there's distortion. There's, uh, it, it's, it's not a perfect copy. There are artifacts and, uh, and, and static. Um, you, you can have your own copy to watch at home, but, but it's slightly deteriorated. And then if you take that copy and you want to make your friend a copy, the copy of the copy is even worse. And on down on the line, if you make another copy, the last copy is only a shadow of the original. And this is what happens with an idolatrous nation. It dies the death of endless repetition. The only movement is downward into degeneration and disintegration. And this is the reality. We all need to understand that there is no good fruit in wickedness, not for nations, not for people. Don't ever think that in some way pursuing sin is ever going to bear us any good fruit. That walking in a way that God has prohibited is ever going to bring you rest or blessing or enjoyment or refreshment. It always ends in death and darkness and hopelessness and deterioration. It works for nations. It works for people. It seems like such a basic, simple concept, but one that we forget. We think that we can pursue folly and we can pursue sin without any consequences. And that is simply false. Israel found this out the hard way. So let's look at some of the causes of the deterioration in this period. Now, I, I didn't read about Omri, but Omri is the father of Ahab. And I want to I read a little bit about him in verse uh, 25 of 1 Kings 16. This is Ahab's father. Omri did evil in the eyes of Yahweh and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel to sin, provoking Yahweh God of Israel to anger with their idols. Who is Omri? Worst king ever. That's, that's the commentary on Omri. Worst king ever. Until we get to Ahab. When Ahab comes to power, we read this down in verse 30. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. Verse 33, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab doubles down on the failure and the wickedness and the idolatry of his father. We thought things were bad with Omri. But now it's only gotten worse with Ahab. Under Ahab, we long for the years of Omri. You know, just kind of how we think, man, I kind of miss the Clinton years, don't you? I mean, <laughs> remember, remember how bad that was at the time? And then you think, man, I kind of take him now. I kind of, yeah. But in fact, it's much worse under Ahab. He does three things right from the start that show us what kind of king he is going to be. He marries Jezebel. I want to be clear. He doesn't marry a Jezebel. He marries the Jezebel. The one. Yeah, that one. The real one. Jezebel, a woman who is so wicked that her name has become synonymous with sexual immorality and heathenism. But he doesn't stop there. He institutionalizes Baal worship. He officially recognizes Baal. And then he allows Jericho to be rebuilt. What's the big deal with that? Well, we're going to find out. So let's spend a little time thinking about these three things and the impact of these three failures of Ahab. First of all, Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, verse 31. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, 
her name means, where is Baal? And this is a uh, little liturgical phrase that Baal worshipers would use in their ceremonies. Uh, Elijah's going to mock the prophets of Baal with this. Where is Baal? Where is he? Is he sleeping? Well, you got to stir up Baal. You got to get his attention. You have to do little rituals to wake him up. And so you say, where is Baal? Well, he, this girl is named after a liturgical phrase in the worship of Baal. It's like naming someone, the Lord be with you and also with you. That's kind of like a, a, the name. She, it's a phrase that they use in their worship. He took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Her dad's name is I'm with Baal, or he's with Baal. Who are you with? I'm with Baal. Whose man are you? I'm Baal's man. That's her dad's name. And he's the king of the Sidonians. And Ahab went and served Baal and worshiped him. So Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. She was from Sidon. We hear about the twin cities of Tyre and Sidon frequently in the Bible. Now, David and Solomon established a really good relationship with these cities during their reign, and especially with Hiram, king of Tyre. He seems to be a really decent man. He was a good friend to Solomon. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent workmen and skilled craftsmen and materials for the building of the temple. He sent cedar and he sent cypress for the building and the construction of the temple project. And through King Hiram... His nation had relationships to God's people. They had exposure to the law of God. They saw the glory of the temple. They could see the festivals and the worship and hear the psalms and the music of God's people. They had interaction with the people of the covenant. And there's no doubt that many citizens of Tyre and Sidon would have submitted themselves to Yahweh. You go down to work in Jerusalem for all these years in construction of the temple, you're going to catch it. You're going to want a part of what's going on there. And perhaps even Hiram himself took part in worship and submitted himself to Yahweh. But the breakup of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom between north and south changed all of that. The idolatry of the northern kingdom of Israel cut Tyre and Sidon off from worship to Jerusalem because Israel's not going south to worship at the temple. And so Tyre and Sidon are cut off as well. And what happens is Tyre and Sidon go back to Baal worship. They leave the worship of Yahweh. So the sin and rebellion and the idolatry of God's people didn't just affect them. It directly affected Gentile unbelievers and cut off their exposure to the word of the Lord and the life of the covenant. It cut them off. Well, there's an easy application and a lesson there that there are people whose only connection to the body of Christ is you. The only person who will ever speak the word of God to them is you. The only opportunity that they'll ever see how Christians live and rejoice is you. And if you and I lead them in unbelief through hypocrisy and inconsistent casual Christianity, we have blood on our hands. We're cutting them off from the only exposure to truth that they have. And that's what happened to Tyre and Sidon. Israel, through their idolatry, led the nations into unbelief. And so now they've discipled the nations in idolatry. We don't have good King uh, uh, Hiram of Tyre anymore. We have wicked Princess Jezebel and her dad, Ethbaal of, of Sidon. And Ahab 
purposely, knowingly marries this idolatrous woman. We've seen over and over in the history of God's people the effects of intermarriage with idol worshipers. It, it ruins everything. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not intermarriage with other races that is the issue, not at all. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite, you might be able to name others. The, these, these people who came from other families and nations and tribes and joined with God's people who submitted themselves to Yahweh and, and are brought together under the covenant through, through marriage is a delight. God's redemption and his salvation comes through these families and these unions. If you look at the, 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 the lineage of Christ, uh, he, there are many non-Jews in that, in that family tree. That's not the issue. But when worshipers of Yahweh marry worshipers of Baal, then you have real trouble because then you're destroying families and you're destroying homes and lives from the inside out. Young people, the prohibition against being unequally yoked, that's not just God spitefully trying to limit your dating pool. That's not him, you know, trying to ruin your life. Um, the purpose of unions and the purpose of marriage is to produce godly offspring. That's one of the purposes. And how do you produce godly offspring when you have two different gospels, when you have two different gods, when you have two different theologies? It is difficult enough to raise faithful children with two faithful parents. How much more difficult is it when you take one parent and you turn them over to Baal or uh, to another god? False worship is a cancer that destroys the foundations of social order. And here Ahab invites Baal into his living room. He invites Baal into his bedroom when he marries Jezebel. What kind of children is this going to produce? Let me ask another question. Now that you've compromised here, what other compromises won't you make? Your, your walls are broken down. There's nothing left. Uh, you are overrun by idolatry and wickedness. And so it's not too long before he invites Baal to an honored place in the kingdom. You have to please Jezebel. You got to keep her quiet. She wants a Baal temple. She's going to get a Baal temple if she asks for it. And so that's what Ahab does. The second thing is that he builds a temple of Baal and he sets up an altar to Baal and puts up an Asherah image as well. Your translation of the Bible, and mine does too, it says a wooden image, but the uh, translation of that little phrase, a wooden image, is Asherah. Um, and that's part of Baal worship. Who are Baal and Asherah? Baal is an expression of the masculine forces of nature. And Asherah is an expression of the feminine forces of nature, like Mother Earth. Baalism is the belief that the universe runs itself through impersonal natural forces, which is very close to materialism. It's very close to our present day materialistic view of the universe even though sometimes they'll say, well, the universe runs through natural laws, and then you can stop them there and say, well, doesn't a law imply a lawgiver? Doesn't design imply a designer? You can ask them that question. But there are forces like gravity, like electromagnetism, like nuclear force, uh, but, the, but the materialistic or even the Baalistic view of, of, the, of the universe would say they just work because they do and there's no designed order to the cosmos, or so it goes. So Baalism is an effort to harness these natural forces and make them work for you. 
In Baalism, you could stimulate nature by doing certain fertility rituals to get Baal and Asherah together. That's what you got to do. You get Baal and Asherah together and you have crops and your uh, goats give birth and all these wonderful things happen by doing these rituals. But it's all very mechanical. You do this ritual and you're guaranteed this result. You do your dance, you dig in the ground, you do another dance, you say another mantra, you drop in the seed, you do another dance, you cover it up, and then you complete your ritual and you're guaranteed a harvest. And if you don't get a harvest that you like, well, you messed up the order. You messed up the, the ritual. You did the dance wrong. Again, this is very close to the modern uh, view as well. Uh, scientism as a religion produces this kind of behavior. I'm not talking about science. I'm talking about the belief, a religion of scientism. Uh, if you apply certain techniques to manipulate the world, you're guaranteed certain results. You know, do the gesture, do the ritual, and it works because it does. That's, it just does. The truth is that impersonal forces don't run the world. God runs the world. God makes things fall when you drop them. God causes water to run downhill and then water to evaporate into clouds. And he moves the clouds over different parts of the land where he wants it to, to rain. And he makes the water drop where he wishes. Uh, as we sang in Psalm 104 this morning, that it's the spirit of God who causes uh, the animals to give birth. It's the spirit of God who moves across the face of the earth and gives life. How do the birds know when to migrate? It's the spirit of God. How do the flowers on the trees know when to open? This breath of the spirit of God blows on them and tells them to open. We have a, a, a view of the universe as Christians where God has not left it to spin on its own, but that God is engaged with his creation every day. But of course, the creator God was not recognized by the worship of Baal. And so it's important when we read about Baal and Asher in the Bible, that we're just talking about the worship of nature. That's what it is. Baalists worshiped nature. Baal isn't a creator, not in their mythology. He's just the force that runs nature. That's going to be important for us to remember when we get later in Elijah's life and he's dealing with this pagan religion. Ahab in introducing Baalism into this culture, he's reintroducing Canaanite religion into the land, that religion that has been pushed out by the conquest under Joshua. And he's, he's pushing out the creator. He's returning to worship the creation. Now, Jeroboam started us down this path. Jeroboam led Israel into liturgical idolatry. He broke the second commandment. He put calves at the places of worship. But on paper, they're still praying to Yahweh. They would have still said they're praying to Yahweh. Ahab leads Israel into full-blown paganism, covenantal idolatry, first commandment breaking idolatry. Ahab forgets Yahweh altogether and builds a counterfeit temple and a counterfeit altar, which means that ordinarily liturgical idolatry will lead to covenant idolatry. Second commandment breaking will lead to first commandment breaking. It, it begins with an idol. It begins with an icon. It begins with a saint. And before long, inevitably, you're worshiping a God of your own imagination. You're worshiping another, another God. And that's the big ledge that Ahab just goes sailing off here. Just he, he revs the engine. He goes flying right off the cliff. Up to this point, there was at least some institutional recognition of Yahweh, at least in name, on paper. At least they still had in Yahweh we trust on their coinage. At least they claimed to be one nation under Yahweh. And they gave lip service to Yahweh, which is a problem. 
and you think it can't get any worse until Ahab shoves all that off the table and he institutionalizes paganism. Now, it doesn't take very much meditation on that to, again, think that's where we are today. In the Western world, we have historically at least had institutional respect for the church, whatever that's worth. But now there's open hostility to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Bible. It's as if you can get away with anything but saying that Jesus is the king of the cosmos. You can say anything except, I believe, every word of the, of the Bible. Anything else goes except for that. It's almost as if saying the word Jesus in certain contexts, it's like dropping the J-bomb and everybody <gasps> sucks in their breath and their eyes get real big and they wonder, can you say that? You know, there may be somebody here that doesn't believe. It doesn't matter. I don't care. Take every opportunity you can in public to pray in Jesus' name. You don't, pr don't pray in your name. What does that mean? Who, what is his name? Pray, you're directed to pray in Jesus' name. Use his name publicly because he is king over everything. And then watch what happens. Just, you know, just light the firecracker and throw it and see what happens. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Uh, so Ahab marries Jezebel. He institutes Baal worship. And thirdly, he allows Jericho to be rebuilt. Verse 34, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn. And with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, we have this reference to Joshua here. Well, why? 500 years before this, Jericho was the first city that Joshua and the people of Israel conquered after they crossed the Jordan River. This city was to be an ascension offering. This city was to be a whole burnt offering. Everything is dedicated to Yahweh. You don't get to keep any part of this, just like the ascension offering. Remember, Achan tries to take a portion of the spoils of the city and he is judged because the city is totally dedicated. It's the first city. It's the first fruits. As soon as we cross the river, everything in this city goes to Yahweh. And after that, we get to keep the spoils. And so because this city was totally de dedicated to Yahweh, Joshua in the spirit pronounces a curse on anyone who would dare rebuild the city. And here's what Joshua said. He said, cursed be the man before Yahweh who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. Now, in the time of Ahab, you have this man, Hiel of Bethel. Why is that significant that he's from Bethel? Well, he grew up in one of these idolatrous centers of worship. This is one of those places where Jeroboam put a golden calf. Uh, Hiel of Bethel's growing up in an idolatrous town and he lays the foundation of Jericho. As he rebuilds the city, he lays the foundation with his firstborn, and he sets up the gates with his youngest. The language in 1 Kings and the language in Joshua implies the death of these sons, that as the foundation is laid, his firstborn dies. And at the end, with the setting up of the gates, his youngest dies. And, and then we're not told how many of his sons died in between. And... I don't know whether we're talking about human sacrifice, if he sacrificed his sons as a dedication for this city, or whether the Lord just took them through a construction accident or something else, if he struck them with illness. What we do know is that cities are often built on the blood of brothers. Cities are built on brothers' blood. Cain kills his brother Abel, and he goes out and builds a city. 
In the book of Judges, Abimelech kills his 70 brothers and he goes out and he sets up his kingdom. He builds his city. Even in Roman mythology, Romulus killed his brother Remus and went on to found Rome. Now, of course, the new Jerusalem, the new city, the church is also built on brothers' blood. Uh, the, the, the church is founded upon and built off of the blood of Christ, the, the, the acceptable sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. All of these others are parodies of the true thing. But in every case, the blood of the innocent cries out from the ground. It cries out for vindication and justice. So Hile of Bethel built the city of Jericho under the oversight of Ahab with his permission, ignoring this 500-year-old curse. And he went ahead regardless, not thinking that the will and the pleasure of the Lord might have something to do with whether he ought to do this. He doesn't take that into account. The ruins of the city of Jericho had stood as a monument century after century, a reminder of God's claim on the land. This is what happens to idolaters. If you want to know what happens to those who ignore Yahweh and his law, look at this rubble. Look at this smoking crater of what used to be a great and fearsome city. It's a reminder of God's judgment. Now, with this action, Ahab and his people are making a bold statement. This is not Yahweh's land anymore. This is our land. And we really don't care what happened 500 years ago. And I don't care what God's law says to do or not to do. It's just a bunch of old stories, and I don't want to hear it. It has nothing to do with our lives today. And he goes ahead. Does any of this strike a chord? Does any of this sound familiar to you? Does any of this resonate? Pagan civilizations built on the blood of sons and brothers, pushing God out of the public consciousness and replacing him with a belief in natural forces that just run on their own. God's people intermarrying with pagans as if it's no big deal. Compromise at the deepest level of people in covenant with Yahweh. And we find out that they're still faithful people in the northern kingdom of Israel this whole time. And you have to believe that they are wondering while this is going on, what in the world is happening to our civilization? Has the whole world gone mad? Is our kingdom disintegrating around us? And if so, what do we do? The glory of the days of Solomon are long gone and they're never coming back. And now we have this clown leading us into idolatry. I can't think about the future for too long without thinking that uh, it, it, this is a completely terrifying future to raise my children in. Well, they had no cause for despair, and neither do we, because we know this has happened before. We know that things have been as bad as they are now and worse, and that when things go in this direction, it means that God is about to do something. Do not be deceived. When God is provoked, God responds. He listens to the cries and the prayers and the worship of his people. He moves and he changes things. He defends his people. He vindicates his name and he advances his kingdom. That's precisely what we'll see him doing in the coming weeks of our study in the life of Elijah. So this is not a time to despair. This is a time to rejoice. It is a good thing that the church is no longer taken for granted. That gives us an opportunity to surprise people and to turn heads and to cause them to take notice when we live what we say we believe. You and I aren't living for Jesus because it's the socially acceptable thing to do anymore because it's just the thing that everybody does. That's not the case. We're doing it because it is the way of life and is the way out of darkness and confusion. Psalm 11 says this. It asks the question. Psalm 11 asks, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do?
That's the same question I have. If the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Well, there's an answer in Psalm 11, and here's the answer. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. The answer is the Lord is in his temple. He sees and hears everything. He's not on vacation. He's not ignorant of what you are experiencing right now. He's not turning a blind eye to the tyrant and the bully and the oppressor. And he promises to act swiftly in vengeance against the wicked and to protect and deliver the righteous. So his eyes are looking for the righteous to defend, which means if you are observing a crumbling social order, it means it's inspection time. Yahweh's looking for the righteous. He's looking for his people to defend. These turbulent times are days in which God is inspecting the hearts of men, looking for faithfulness, looking for who is in, in, in covenant with him and who is in rebellion. Second Chronicles 16 says this, the eyes of Yahweh run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He's looking for the faithful. He's looking for the loyal in order to demonstrate his strength on their behalf. Jesus asked another question in, in Luke 18. Jesus asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? These, these times of judgment are a sifting out for Yahweh in his spirit to look and find who is loyal, who is mine, who is righteous, who is faithful, who is clinging to my promises, who comes before me with their prayers and petitions, and who eats at my table, who renews covenant with me. That's who I'm looking for. It's easy to see who isn't loyal. Those who have the attitude of Ahab. It was a trivial thing for him to walk in rebellion. A light thing, a trifle, not a big deal. He just sets up a rival worship system. He just sets up a rival city. He just sets up a rival social order. And it says, this is fine. This is good. Yahweh doesn't care. We're free to do this. It's not a big deal. What's Yahweh going to do about it? What's he going to do? Just as you and I act as if there's this neutral space in life that God doesn't care about. God doesn't care how you act, and he doesn't care how you think, and he doesn't care what you do. There's this, this neutral space. It's just okay. Just take it or leave it. Of course, that is a lie, and you know this. You either follow the Lord Jesus, who is the source of all truth, or you're following Satan, the father of lies. Just admit that you're a Satan worshiper. Just admit that that's who you're following. Is that strong language? Well, Jesus told the Pharisees, you're of their father, the devil. <laughs> you're, you're his children. You've got his eyes. You've got his nose. You've got his ears. You look just like him because you're acting just like him. You're the following one or the other. And Satan is the father of lies. And Ahab built his kingdom on a foundation of lies. The lie that you can worship God any old way. That God has nothing to say about who you marry or who you covenant with. That God's will doesn't matter in how we build our cities or organize our society. And to live in harmony with Ahab's kingdom means to swallow the lies, to abide the lies, to go along with the lying against your conscience, against God's will, against the order of God's creation. Lies stacked on lies and everybody knows it. Everybody knows it's falsehood. Thus... Ahab provoked God to anger. 
And what God is looking for in these periods of history is people who will not abide the lies, who won't put up with the lies, won't participate, won't repeat the lies. The eyes of the Lord scan the earth looking to bless the man, to defend and protect the man who will not abide the lies. Here, deliverance is going to come through Elijah, a man who cuts through the lies, God already has a solution waiting in the wings like he always does. And so if you live under Ahab, refuse to walk in the lies of Ahab. Reject the lies. Don't adopt the language of the liar. Don't call things what they're not. Don't accept the lying narrative. Don't repeat their false mantras and their oaths and their rhetoric. Reject it all and point it out to your children every opportunity that you have. Yeah, that conglomeration of people that are calling themselves a family, that's, that's not a family. You know what a family is. And also, you're not the descendant of primordial goo. You are not an accident. Also, inflation is theft every day. Say that to your children. Make it a little, make it a little catechism. Inflation is theft. That's right. Inflation is theft. <laughs> and so on and so on. Refuse the lies and seek to please the Lord Jesus in every area of your life. That's who Yahweh is looking for. We like to say that there's not one Adam in the entire universe that the Lord Jesus doesn't reign over as king. But you know, when you say that, you realize that includes every, every second of your life over which Jesus reigns. Be the man in private that you want to project yourself to be in, pri in public. Be the man in private that you hope everyone sees in public. Be the woman in your mind and in your heart that you want everyone to see that you are. Uh, 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 have consistency between the private and the public parts of your life. Because Jesus is king. And it's our calling as his people to show him as king and to put forth his kingship over all things. Which means for the Christian, pleasing Jesus must be more important than breathing. Pleasing Jesus is more important than life itself. There is nothing more important. The singular purpose of my existence is to worship and obey my king above all things. That is who God is looking for in turbulent times, in, in these crazy, unstable times where the foundations are being destroyed. When you feel like you're living among the ruins, who gets pulled into the new creation and who gets to walk through on the other side? Who gets to reign on the other side, the one who is loyal to Yahweh and who rejects the lies of the Ahab. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would, by your spirit, give us strength to have faith, to trust, and to believe you, no matter what falls apart around us, uh, but to commit ourselves to pleasing you in all things. Give us this strength because we don't have it in ourselves. We don't have this resolve. We need your spirit. We need your strength every day of our lives. We ask you to give this to us. Grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.